0: This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Milliband and Jeff Lloyd.
1: Hello. Hello. We're talking to you from the past. Yes. Um, I mean, I know we always are, with it being a podcast, it being recorded. Rent but... a Ghost. Are <laughs> <laughs> well, you a fan of Rent a Ghost? Yeah, big fan. Dobbin the Mule? Mr. Yeah. Claypole? Rent a Ghost. Seems to me I'm naming things rent a spirit Mister Meacher, Audrey from Coronation Street, is I remember, Miss Popoff. Yeah, I remember her, Miss Popoff. I don't think you were that big a rent ghost fan at all. I'm naming all these things, and you're looking at me blankly. <laughs> blankly. It's almost like all you can remember is that bit of a theme music. I could, yeah. <laughs> Um, But we're speaking to you from the past, uh, because we were recording this a couple of weeks ago. Um, So we just thought it was worth mentioning that in case the world has changed beyond all recognition
2: in those two weeks. But if it has, we're going to record a new one so people won't hear this. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. The- Although there may be some debate about what change beyond recognition means. Yes, yeah. So uh, that's th- because you're on a well deserved vacation. This is right. So uh, I d- we're just adding this
1: in as a little disclaimer. I had I had um, a pre vacation the other day. Oh, right. I went to Bournemouth. I thought you were going to say. I went to Bournemouth. Oh, yes. Uh, I went to see a friend in Bournemouth. And the Born, reason. Bournemouth, as Gordon Brown used to call it. Is that real? Right? Yeah. Anybody- Was everybody too scared to correct him? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> The reason I mentioned this is because I wanted to ask you about some train etiquette. Oh yes, because we took the train to 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 Bournemouth, and I know you're on trains all the time, going to your constituency in Doncaster. And it was already a little fraught because it's uh, me and my wife and uh, our three-year-old son, and I'm a bit annoyed at her because she hasn't sprinted down the train in advance to bagsy a table. Tables
2: so, are really. I mean, it's a big field. Right. There's nothing worse than a reservation, which isn't a table.
1: So this was completely unreserved. Yeah, this, this train. It was. A, it was a free for. Yeah. It was like the Wild West. Yeah, we get on. There's a table for four people. Yeah, there's just one woman sitting at Uh-oh, it. Oh, uh, yeah. And next to her, on the seat next to her, is a dog see, uh, suitcase. Oh. And I say to, her, oh, um, is is anybody sitting here, please? And she says. Well, yeah, that's my suitcase. <laughs> now, surely no, nobody thinks a suitcase should have a seat of its own. Okay, that's that's
2: problematic. Now, how did you react? I
1: was like, oh, it's just there. There the, are the three of us, and there are you know three seats around the table. Uh, and I said, is your bag heavy? Would you like me to put it put it up there for you? Which is a bit of a passive aggressive yeah. thing to say. And she sort of begrudged, She you know, she was sort of rumped under her breath. So I just put it up and then we sat down. And I could tell that she was angry that she had to share the four table with three other people, including That's a noisy good. toddler. Um, so I made a point of... My son, I said, L- I need to put your coat up. He's going, why, Daddy, why, Daddy? I said, because when you're on a training, you're sharing space with other people. You can't just strew your things over the shared spaces. You have to put them out of the way.
2: That is interesting because you normally don't like confrontation. Well, it was passive-aggressive.
1: I wasn't saying it to her. I was saying it to my three-year-old How long son. were you with her then for? Two hours. and It was a bad atmosphere at the table. Were you best of friends by the end? No, no. I mean, we didn't acknowledge each other for the rest of the journey. What would you have done in that situation?
2: Um, I don't know. I think I would have maybe done something similar to you. Mm. I said, would you mind sitting down? People don't. People don't like it when... They lose. Did you have a preference for sitting forwards or backwards? I have to go forwards, so otherwise I feel a bit poorly. Really? How about you? No, I'm a of relaxed. Really? I prefer you... forwards marginally, but relaxed about it.
1: You seem like the sort of person who'd get travel sick. Mm. Very much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I say this as somebody who gets a bit travel sick. There I was being sympathetic about your situation, <laughs> and then you kick me in the ghoulies. <laughs> I don't know if anybody said the word ghoulies since nineteen eighty two. I mean I was sort of I was sort of completely unprepared for that. I
1: just think you seem like a man with a delicate constitution.
2: Well, well I am when I... somebody kicks me in the ghoulies. <laughs>
1: right, we need to we need to yeah, move need past to, this. Anyway, but
2: I, I'm agreeing with you. I, I think okay. that sort of train etiquette is it's is... sorry
1: sorry about implying that you're the type of person who might get travel sick.
2: I actually don't Why get do you see sick. that as
1: a weakness? I actually don't get travel sick. It's like you're proud of it. It's not an achievement to not get travel sick. It is an you're
2: achievement. You're either predisposed
1: to that or you're not. It's not something to be proud Pers- of or ashamed of. Personal responsibility. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's move on before this gets yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah, it would be more. Uncomfortable. Or, or even, yeah, more yeah.
2: E- <laughs> even more uncomfortable. Actually, I'm with the woman with the suitcase now. <laughs> Right, what are we talking about this week? This week we're talking about universal childcare. I have to say, I think this is an episode that's been a long time coming. Uh, Lots of listeners have said we should talk about this. Britain has some decent childcare nursery provision, but nothing like the universal system that we have in some parts of the world, particularly Scandinavia. Um, It's great for kids. It's great for parents makes a huge difference to your society it's the best investment you can make high time we uh, did it we are going to be talking about it we're going to be talking to someone from sweden talking about their fantastic you know all singing all dancing uh, childcare system and then we're going to be talking to a couple of people from the uk who are talking about the kind of reforms we need here to get at least towards that kind of utopia
1: and for this week's Cheerful People, you might know as a writer uh, and a, a playwright, but she's here to talk about Fun Palaces. She is. That's right. Fun Palaces. We're going to be joined by Stella Duffy.
2: We, we can promise you great fun with Stella Duffy. And she's And crumpets.
1: Yeah. Find out more later.
2: What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is of the culinary variety. Um, the slow cooking regime what? craze has hit the Miliband household.
1: You bought a slow cooker.
2: Yeah, Justine bought a slow cooker.
1: And and what have you been slow cooking in it? Well,
2: there was a bit of an accident where some spaghetti got cooked in the slow cooker but not not from me. Uh, <laughs> uh, um but it was a sort of it was a kind of unfortunate accident.
1: How many hours was the spaghetti in the I slow cooker? I don't
2: know, but I don't think it went well. Um but uh um but no generally what I'm I'm still sort of you know, coming to terms with a slow cooker, but she thinks it's the business. you are
1: well, you coming on in leaps and bounds? It's not it's not that long ago. You were buying yourself a new frying pan. Yeah, honestly. And here so, you are with a slow cooker. Yeah, exactly.
2: What about you? What's your reason to be cheerful?
1: While I was in Bournemouth, uh, my, my friend is training as a person, is training to be a personal trainer. I was talking about the fact that I have never found a form of exercise that I've enjoyed. I did spend time with a personal trainer in about 2006 for a few months. And the yeah, only thing they I... they sacked you. Well, I mean, there, were, there was an incident where... Uh, I, I was puffing and panting so much that somebody else in the gym came over and said to her, is that man okay? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just because not... Because you've
2: got tendency towards travel sticks. <laughs> so obviously, <laughs> obviously yeah. that's sort of... You I'm, know. A yeah. I'm a
1: weakling, I'm a weakling. Anyway, so, so I was explaining all this to my friend and saying, the only thing I ever enjoyed was being stretched. So not doing stretches, but lying on the floor while the personal trainer stretched me. And she said, why don't you try something called reformer Pilates? Reform Pilates. yes. And it's, it's basically you put yourself on a machine and it stretches you. Have you done it? So I know I'm going to book a class. This is my reason to be cheerful. It's called
2: Reform Pilates. Or Reform or
1: Reformer, Reformed, Reformation. Right. But, I mean, it looks like some kind of medieval torture rack. And it's my great hope that I'm going to finally have found a form of exercise that I enjoy. And that's, that's my reason to be cheerful. Reformer Pilates,
2: it seems to be called. What are the benefits of... Using the Pilates reformer.
1: Well, I'm, I'm hoping body that the fat. machine does all Sounds the work. Sounds
2: too easy, though.
1: Well, that's what I'm hoping. I always like the look of, you know... Promise it's it's a longer, leaner body. Yeah, that's what I want. Shit. Because <laughs> I want a longer body Why would you not want that? I want a longer body because I used to be average height, and now the average has changed, and I'm below average.
2: A quick Google of reformer Pilates may reveal machines that resemble torture contraptions. Yes.
1: God... Tune in next week for the longer leaner me.
0: You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
1: We're joined now by Suzanne Garvis, who is Professor of Child and Youth Studies at the University of Gothenburg. Shana, as I believe they say over there. Sjöne, or välkommen. Tack så So c- Maybe you, you should just interview, conduct the interview completely in Swedish. I think that was about the extent of my
2: Swedish. Could you do uh, the first question in Swedish?
1: Um, I, I don't think so, no, no. Could you start by giving us an, an overview of the situation with childcare in Sweden? So, you know, what, what are people entitled to? How much do parents pay? What does the government provide? You know, the the Make adrian. us really envious. Yeah, yeah, s- us, sell it to us. This is, this is, this
2: is where we get envious.
3: Definitely. So the Swedish system, I think, is an envy of many, many people in governments around the world. It's based on a structure that allows access and affordability to all parents. So uh, some of the, the things when when people are thinking about the Swedish system is that we have rules that all parents are entitled to a place within four months. Once they register with the preschool, access then is, uh maintained, but then also affordability. So their fees are kept low as part of the concept of max tax. What that means is that there's a three-tiered system depending on parent income, but the fees can never actually be more than around 3% of a parent's income for the first child. And this is really, really a low cost uh, compared to a lot of countries. Our dog actually goes to puppy preschool and his puppy preschool is more expensive than my daughter's preschool.
2: Wow. And what age does it start?
3: Yes. So parental leave is usually for uh, uh, 480 days. So, children can start from one year of age, and then the focus is very much on multi-age groups. So, children one to five will be in the preschool altogether. And because uh, most people trust the preschool, around 95% of children will actually go to preschool each
2: day. Even from the age of one? Yes, and if I may ask a personal question, so how much would it cost for you if, if your puppy preschool is more expensive? How much would it be per month? Or, or...
3: Yeah, so our puppy preschool is actually double what we pay for my child's preschool. So uh, we pay 1,400 kroner, and I'm not quite sure That's I mean,
1: how... that's the, for very roughly sort of £140 pounds a month. Yes, and that includes all meals as well. Wow, that's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, it's unbelievable. i am just thinking about what we pay for nursery here. Uh, for three days a week, and, and it's many, many times more than that. It's it's making me a little bilious.
3: Yeah, well, it's based on the idea as well that um, all children need access and that uh, preschool acts as a form of poverty prevention as well. So children aren't responsible for their life situations, and the, the preschool is is to make up and provide all children with the same uh, good start in life.
2: Suzanne, uh, I think... Some of our listeners will have been familiar with the Swedish sort of nirvana. Um, but how did we get here? I mean, in other words, because, I, you know, from coming from where we are in the UK, where we're miles behind, it'd be interesting to know how it came about, this, this, this uh, settlement. Was it
1: about women in the workforce or was, was it specifically about the, the benefits of of, of childcare?
3: Uh, Both, both at the same time, but also there's been uh, journeys along the way that have brought in uh, more government regulation. So, things like the maxi tax, for example, have come out of um, high fees initially where parents could not afford preschool. So, then the government said, hey, we need to actually do something about this to make sure that preschool is affordable for all parents. So um, the system has been in development as well since about the 1970s and one of the important things is that the system is actually uh, under the education department, not under another government agency. So immediately it gets a lot of respect and it's considered the first step in a child's education journey.
1: Now that's interesting because children don't start education how we we would think of it till about the age of seven and then emphasis is put on play in those early years right
3: Yes, very much so. But uh, there's such a focus here as well that, you know, it's the first education institution that a child will ever come in contact with. So you have to make it uh, fantastic for not only the child but also the family to build trust into the education system and also to then have this lovely collaboration between the, the preschool and the parents themselves.
2: Just on the history of this... It, since when has it been like this system?
3: So the system has had a, a lot of lot of changes. So uh, the system ha- has come out of very much from this idea of working women's movements as well and allowing uh, both parents to work. And then each uh, time there has been a political change as well, the system has changed a little bit. So in the 90s, for example, it went very much from a government uh, central controlled to a commune or a, a local council approach as part of the decentralisation across Sweden in the 90s. So what that means as well is that preschool looks different across Sweden depending on the community that you live in. And part of that is part of this idea of the community is the best place to provide support rather than from a national level or multi-levels of government.
2: And one of the things about this is, is the emphasis on the training of people who work in the sector. What, what training do childcare workers receive? And, and what's the sort of child development sort of uh, thinking behind this?
3: Yeah, so that's a really good question because the skills of the workforce is really important. So in Sweden, in um, the preschools, they are to have a a bachelor qualified uh, foreschool letter or preschool teacher, and then they will have assistants as well. And one of the strong features is uh, very, very, very good group ratios. So usually it will be three adults with between 15 to 17 children.
2: And just following on from that question about the training, I mean, presumably that means that the pay of workers is is, is sort of certainly greater than it would be on average in this country. And, and, and the profession is very kind of a highly regarded profession.
3: Yes. Yeah, so in the surveys that come out, uh, preschool teachers are one of the most respected and trusted uh, in society. And uh, that's always interesting each year when these surveys come out of just how much uh, respect there is for the work of these preschool teachers. And they do have uh, better salaries than staff in the UK. And what's interesting is that the the rates of salary will actually vary depending on the local council where the preschool teacher lives. So some preschool teachers are actually paid very, very well uh, for what they do. And uh, there's also other entitlements for the preschool teacher as well. So... These could include things such as free clothing uh, and shoes, uh, specifically if they're needing to work outside as part of uh, risky play and outdoor play agendas. And then uh, other things as well. So in some municipalities, there are six-hour working days for preschool teachers
2: as well. And what do we know about – I mean, obviously, the Swedish system sounds brilliant to our our ears – what do we know about the impacts it's had on, on sort of wider issues, so parental employment, child development, and so on?
3: The idea is that by allowing both parents to work as well, it actually reduces poverty because families have more income. But at the same time, it's also allowing children to build very strong foundation of uh, social and emotional well-being before they actually start school. So the children are comfortable, they know the routines, they're very much used to this type of uh, group learning, so then they have an easier transition once they do actually start school.
2: And just to be clear about this, this, this system... It has cross-party support, does it? In other words, whether you're on the right or on the left of politics, you support it.
3: Definitely, definitely. So the idea is that uh, education is supported at all levels by all
2: parties. Now, this, this is probably a sort of hard question, Suzanne, but 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 how do we get from where we are in the UK, do you think, to to Sweden, or, or you know, what can we learn from Sweden, and 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 how do you think we can? We can get there.
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question because I, I have this conversation often with, uh, government policy makers around the world. And the starting point is allowing equal access for everybody. So, uh, that means that all children have a right to preschool from a, a very young age, but also it's affordable for all parents and there is, uh, access there. So if those two things can be universal for all, uh, families, that's the first step in, in the, in the, uh, solution
2: and i suppose just thinking aloud there's obviously a cost issue about this there's a sort of universality issue so it's kind of it's not completely universal because you pay a you, you know high-income families pay a bit but it's sort of a more universal service but there's also a sort of debate which i guess happens here about whether children should be in childcare from the age of one or whether they should be at home with one of their parents and maybe that's kind of part of what sort of you know, sh- kind of clouding or shrouding this 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 debate. Is that right? Is that a debate in Sweden? You know, what what's your, what would be your thinking on that?
3: Yeah, we, we don't so much have this type of debate in Sweden because it's understood that the parent and the preschool working partnership together to support the child's learning and development. So rather than one being better than the other, the approach here is that they will work side by side And what is best for the actual child as well.
2: But most, most kids, even from one, are doing it full time, are they, the childcare?
3: Yeah, so parents, because we have uh, parental leave here, parents will uh, maybe work uh, uh, part time. So as part of Swedish law as well, you're entitled to part time work and not be penalised, what your child, before your child starts school. So, on average, uh, the Swedish children will spend around 30 hours a week
2: in preschool. It sounds like utopia, really. Um, Suzanne Garvis, uh, that's really been a brilliant explanation of how it works in Sweden. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So if that is the utopia, it's now time to talk about the situation uh in the UK. And I'm delighted to say that we're joined in Jeff's house by Claire Harding, who's acting head of Quorum Family and Childcare, a charity campaigning on access and quality in childcare, and Jerome De who is senior lecturer in economics at the Open University and co-chair for policy at the Women's Budget Group. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So maybe we can just start by both of you laying out why, in your view, this matters—the uh, state of childcare in the UK—before we get onto the specifics of it, why does it? Why should it matter to us?
0: Two reasons, I think. Um, Firstly, that we know childcare enables parents to work. It's good for parents to have choice. I think anybody who's ever not worked when they wanted to can tell you that. But that's also really important for the economy. It's terrible for the economy if people, usually women who are highly skilled, usually in their twenties and thirties, if their skills drop out, we all lose. Um, We also know, and there's very strong international evidence for this, that childcare is really good for children's development. Kids who go to a high-quality nursery far more likely to do well at school. And researchers here in England have chased that right all the way up to 60. They do better in their GCSEs.
1: And can you paint a picture of how things are here in the UK at the moment? I know there were some reforms a couple of years ago. What were those? What impact have they had?
0: Very mixed picture here in the UK at the moment. One of the big problems we have in this policy area is just how incredibly complicated it is to explain both for policy people like yourselves, but also for mums and dads out there. So to try to summarise, all three-year-olds and four-year-olds before they start in school reception are getting or should be getting 15 hours a week of free childcare. Some three-year-olds, if their parents are working, get 30 some two-year-olds, if their parents are not earning very much or nothing at all, or if they have disabilities, get 15 hours. For everybody else, there's a complex system of subsidies through the benefits system and tax-free childcare, which under certain circumstances can be quite generous, but in many circumstances aren't generous enough.
2: Am I right in thinking that the government recently introduced 30 hours and that that was quite fraught?
0: Yes, it it has been quite fraught. It's sort of bedding in a bit now. There was a lot of issues around it, because many of these parents were parents who would have been using nurseries anyway. So that means you're transferring money that was coming to from parents to money that's coming from the state. And in some cases, the state pays less than parents would. So that's really difficult for nurseries, their income falls. And that's led to all sorts of quite complex issues for the sector. It does seem to be settling down a little bit now, but it's certainly true to say that this is a, a difficult and fast-moving situation. And that's for
2: all four-year-olds and three-year-olds?
0: It's for all three- and four-year-olds from the term after their, after their third birthday until they start school, only if their parents are earning the equivalent of at least 16 hours a week on the minimum wage.
4: And that makes right. it complicated because it's fifteen hours universal for everyone, and then a top up of, of those fifteen hours only for parents. So, so parents who have different situation, uh, changing situation, maybe they lose their entitlement. But for the child who is supposed to have a kind of stable um, a childcare experience, then they would no longer lose be your, entitled. It'd be my ignorance, but if you lose your job, then does your child lose the childcare?
0: There is a grace period, but ultimately, yes, they could.
2: That's not great, is it? I think you made reference to this previously. There's an issue about how much sort of statutory childcare there is or nursery education there is. Beyond that, what tell us about cost, access, uh, and, and the wider picture.
0: So the first thing to say about childcare in the UK, and particularly during those preschool years, is that it's expensive. And that's truest from The end of parental leave until children turn free. Really for two reasons. Firstly, there's no, as we've said, in most cases, there's no free spaces available. Secondly, there's very strict rules and regulations in this country about how many staff you have to have per child. And that means that really it's hard to make childcare cheap. So for about 25 hours a week, where, which is, you know, fairly typical part time, um, we're talking about £125 a week on average. Places like London, that could be hugely higher.
2: Which is, I can vouch for that. Which is which is what four or five times more than Sweden. And the pay of people who work in the sector, we've been hearing about how in Sweden, you know, you have lots of people with degrees and it's you know, well reasonably expensive. well paid, yeah. and all that. But
4: that that that's a problem. I mean, the, the 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 UK not only has expensive childcare, but for for staff that's really badly paid, um, and also the qualification is not. Um, Compared to other countries, such as the Scandinavian country is not very good. About 13%, 15% of, of staff is, uh, has got a, a graduate degree. Um, um, the rest is, is less educated. So there might be the, 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 maintained sector, the school sector has more graduates in, um, working with children directly, but the voluntary and the, uh, um, commercial sector much less, much fewer. So it's, um, it's a problem as well in terms of, of quality of childcare provided.
1: Claire, can you tell us a little bit of the history of the, of the childcare issue in the UK?
0: Over the last 40 years or so, um, starting in 1971, where one of the key women's liberation demands was 24-hour nurseries, among various other things, there has been a very principally feminist push for more childcare to support and enable women to work. One of the key successes of the movement, I think, has been to move it beyond that. So there's now much more of an acknowledgement that childcare is not about just selfish working mothers wanting to go and make money, or at the even more negative end, um, desperately poor families where they have no choice but to work, and they clearly wouldn't if they didn't have to, into this realisation that childcare is good for children, which is now very broadly acknowledged.
1: What have we learned about that in terms of what it does for child development?
0: I think going back to the 1950s, you have lots of ideas about attachment, which posit that it's absolutely essential for the child to be with his or her mother, and it's always the mother, absolutely all the time until they start school. One of the things that the Labour government of the 1990s did was set up and pay for some really big research studies, which have proved that actually being in childcare is really good for kids. And that's helped us to move the conversation on to a debate about what's good for everybody in society. So this is no longer seen as such a niche feminist issue. And there are still people who disagree with that, of course, but I would say that in the mainstream, it's very widely acknowledged now that childcare is good for kids and that actually starting school, having not been to a nursery or childminder, is likely to be a disadvantage.
1: And and Jerome, you have written uh, a lot about how the state could fund universal childcare. Can you talk to us about that proposal and how it would work?
4: Well, I think that the, the premise of the of the thinking was that because it's such a patchwork of um of childcare provision and and state support, so like let's let's reinvent the system. Let's start from what's needed. So, what constitutes a good childcare system? Um so the child staff ratio, the qualification, the appropriate pay to the equivalent of primary school teachers, uh, based on a full-time week of 40 hours, which corresponds to about 35 hours full-time for women and and some time for commuting. So almost like agnostic about the costs first, we aggregate all the costs to see how, how much it would be to fund that if there is full take-up, universal, free, full-time, high-quality childcare. And it's about 3% of GDP, which is about £60 billion a year which is enormously higher 60 than sixty million the current, more
2: than we pet spent it on the it's, it's
4: uh, well it's ten times more than what the public uh the, the government is funding at the moment. But the the, the, the we don't just- stop here because the the um, what it does it creates employment directly and then it creates employment indirectly with all the suppliers to the to the nurseries and all these newly employed people spend in the economy so there is a multiplier in terms of consumption etc. All of which raises tax revenues. From consumption from income, and on top of that, those who are um, uh, enabling the, the child care for time enables women to work more women to work, and therefore less reliance on universal credit or the equivalent on on, on child tax credit because their income increases, so when you Plug all of these numbers in the in the equation to see how much fiscal revenue you get. You 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 manage to find about seventy five percent of the uh, upfront cost of sixty billion. So you need to find about twenty five percent of which could be either uh, parental fees or general so that's taxation. About 50,
2: Fifteen billion.
4: Yes, so which for is those, not negligible but for
1: those of us who don't when we, we hear numbers like the, the yeah. difference between 15 billion and sixty billion is these are just huge numbers when you were working at the treasury, yeah. how big a number is fifteen billion it's forty
4: five billion different than sixty billion <laughs> <laughs> but it's three percent of GDP <laughs> right. like sixty billion Sorry. which is which is a huge number, but is it a number that if you are serious about a genuine childcare that will have beneficial effects in the long term is not necessarily. so Denmark's been two percent of just above 2% 15 billion doesn't feel that much no but also when you take another perspective which is the longitudinal way of, of saying so for a typical mother of two children if that child care which is very expensive uh, for the state allows them to recoup some of our lost earnings from staying in employment over the lifetime I calculated that on, on um, a difference So for a low educated mother it would take about 11 years to recoup from you know the increased employment and earnings and the tax paid out of that and, and that o- only about about income tax and not considering consumption or the reduced spending. And what spending. are you assuming in this, Jerome, about the, the how much people are being charged for it? Free.
2: It's free, completely free. Completely So that's free. actually beyond the Swedish system.
4: Totally beyond the Swedish. The, the, the exercise was not necessarily to say we should have a sure, free universal sure. childcare, but it's the reasoning about, you know, why do we have free education and not free childcare? What is fundamentally yeah. the difference? Because you have a system where from very a- early age, Children are being developing and um educated and 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 learning by playing. It's that all of that is part of their development that that makes them successful. Not just on you know academic skill or cognitive skills, but behavioral, social, etc. So why not try? It's conceiving childcare policy as a as a public investment in the same way that's investment in infrastructure or physical infrastructure because it's an employment creation policy. The 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 the, the, the policy that I'm talking about, the universal childcare, is is Um, indirectly and uh, directly would create 1.8 million jobs full-time equivalent, which is pretty much the entire increase in in jobs that was supposed to happen during the the 2010 to to today, but with very different working conditions. These are full-time well-paid jobs, Um, and not just in childcare. Claire, what do you think about this?
0: I think it's very hard to disagree that we should hugely increase investment in childcare you know, there's a lot of anecdote that supports this stuff. We um, did some surveying of parents in London recently. And what comes across really strongly is that however people felt about childcare before they started, people come in with all sorts of ideas. Almost everybody, when the child starts with a nursery or with a childminder, they notice really quickly positive improvements. Behaviour, learning, cognition, taking turns, knowing how to use cutlery. Families really value this stuff.
4: It's interesting because there's um, there's the public support issue about oh it's never going to work in here people want choice they want to be able to stay at home it's the part time is important etc and in Norway they had the same issue there was very low public support for a massive investment in the late nineties early two thousand about um, increasing. Uh, drastically in the same way, full-time, uh, affordable childcare with a hard subsidy. So Norway is a lot more recent than Sweden. Though. Much more recent. And actually, uh, the, the, the increase was quite uh, over five, five, six years. And you see the take up was very high and the attitudes changed along the way so that now in, you know, 10 years after it's fully implemented, nobody would think about part time childcare or working. And how did that and- change happen? Because one of the things I think both of us are interested
2: in is what's the sort of political small P or big P political sort of, uh, forces that, that,
4: that, that shape this. There was, um, an intention of providing more um, opportunities for employment for for mothers to follow what because they were lagging behind the other Scandinavian countries, and they realized that childcare was a, a solution. But there was low pub- public support in the sense that there was a different a mix of uh, market provision and public provision, uh, higher part-time employment for mothers, etc. But there, there was there was still a public support with the concept of providing childcare publicly. Et Where are we in the league? I mean if
2: the huh. Scandinavians are top of the league
4: where are we oh well in terms of cost we are the most the, the lowest with Ireland Netherlands and the US maybe right um for a typical family in terms of hours of childcare, also um, amongst those with the, the 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 least hours in formal childcare, about twenty hours, uh, again uh, alongside with Ireland, and, but most other countries, you know, Eastern Europe, even Southern Europe, they've they've completely overtaken the right. UK in terms of proportion of children, and so not very well, not very well. One in, thing in to
0: Europe. add, I think we we have this sort of normative idea in Britain, and it's kind of reinforced by the benefit system and at what point it ceases to pay to work, that women will work part-time. And I was really interested when I looked into this recently to discover that among other OECD countries, our maternal employment rate is quite high, but the proportion of those women, mothers, who are working part-time is also really high. So it's really easy to assume that the pattern that we have here in the UK is normal. But I think as Jerome has been saying, it's really not. Part of that is because, of course, we look to the United States as the other big Anglophone country. And it is fair to say that their childcare provision is worse than ours. But we must not assume that that is true of all rich economies. It's really not.
1: Can we we talk about beyond cost and access? Uh, What else needs to be done to address issues of childcare in the UK?
0: I think in the system we have now, there's a lot about awareness, which we've kind of touched on, that people people don't know what they're entitled to. They maybe um, aren't confident of the benefits of childcare until they've actually tried it. I think it's easy for people like me to forget that universal paid-for childcare, even to the minimal extent we have it here in the UK, is pretty new. Women, mothers of my generation, were generally not in nursery until we reached school. I had working parents and went to a childminder. So mothers of about my age, it's not kind of automatically necessarily in your head that this stuff exists in the same way that we all know that schools exist or dentists exist or hospitals exist.
2: So how does this idea fit with other family policies like parental leave, flexible working and so on? Do they need to go together? Would you do childcare first? Um,
4: Jeff will come on to the Jeffocracy in a sec, but I... I mean, definitely it needs to be integrated. And most successful stories in other countries have uh, changed both at the same time. Germany is one example, for example. You 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 create a more egalitarian parental leave which has individual rights, well-paid uh, f- uh, uh, paternity leave and maternity leave and some shared leave, but bo- all well-paid. The best example is Iceland with three months for the mother, three months for the father, paid at 80 or 90% of their former earnings. Soon to be five, month, I think. I think. And then I think yeah maybe it's it's, yeah. it's increased and then uh, a period that's set. Yeah. but also some flexibility in the leave in terms of um, um, maybe not uh, reduced hours or or, or uh, full time leave in in the first year but some days that are possibly spread over several years. And also a reduction in working time in full time, full time working week for everybody so that men are incentivized in, in, into caring activities or other activities as much as, uh, women, but also finding the right balance of, of income necessary for, for living and, uh, pro- providing care time.
1: Is, is there much political will in this country behind these ideas? So, I mean, d- do the current government, for example, see the reforms that were made a couple of years ago as, well, we've we've done our bit, or is, is there an appetite and an acknowledgement that things need to change?
0: I think it is interesting that Theresa May, in one of her last acts as Prime Minister, put forward a number of consultations which are now running to do with things like paternity leave, some quite specific stuff about flexible work. And leave for parents of premature babies. And you know when we're talking about the kind of scale that Jerome is talking about, leave for parents of premature babies probably sounds a bit peculiar. But I think there is an appetite in certain areas of government um, to move forward on this. We are trying to continue to push home the message that... 30 hours for three and four year olds is very nice, but you know, that's an average of five terms of entitlement in term time only. Children are children for an awful lot longer than that. So there's a lot further to go, but I don't think we should underestimate actually how far we have come in the last couple of decades.
1: And, and finally, we have a thing on the podcast, which is called the Jeffocracy. It's uh, it's a utopia with me installed as a benign leader. If I was to make you joint ministers for, I don't know, would, it, would you be education ministers? I mean, would you be children's ministers? I, I'm not sure. But if, if I, I was to give you carte blanche, what is the first thing you would do day one with regards to
4: this? Yes. So minister for education, definitely not childcare because it's an integrated part for all years and convene all the stakeholders to present a plan because obviously if 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 i'm becoming uh minister for childcare, means the the manifesto has been approved which was about providing free universal childcare. so we re- bringing along every uh stakeholders presenting the plan and then sit down to see what what's the best implementation phase um so that you know we've got a five years um uh achievement uh route but um I think everybody is on board actually because because from all the the echoes, it seems that apart from the Treasury, which is the last bastion of convincing uh most actors in the in the sector are, are, agree about the issues to solve childcare
1: Claire, what's the first big change you'd make?
0: So the absolutely day one change before any money is spent on building new nurseries or increasing um, parental interest in childcare would be to take this right out of the benefits system. I think it's toxic that that that's where it sits. It prevents parents from using it. There are all sorts of silly practical problems about paying for childcare. Up front and getting paid back in arrears, but are literally blocking people from work and could be got rid of at zero cost tomorrow if there was the political will.
1: All right, you got the job, both of you. Uh, Claire Harding and Jerome De Hena, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's another reason to love the Swedes. I mean, why? why don't we emigrate together well there could be that yeah
1: yeah yeah yeah. we could uh ask if the jeffocracy could be made part of the kingdom of sweden that's true yeah they do have a king they do king is he a Carl gustav i think maybe yeah i've seen a photograph of him in
2: swimming trunks have you fancied being the king of sweden
1: i mean if they asked I'm sure I could agree on terms. But don't you think?
2: I mean, it is it is really, and also you know the cost of the childcare in Sweden, even for obviously a relatively well-to-do family, and and it's just, I mean, it's, and and then and then listening to our other guests, to to Claire and Jerome, I mean, it just seems like a no-brainer in terms of child development, in terms of the impact it can have on employment um but but we're still a long way away from it 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 takes a boldness doesn't it to to commit to something big and ambitious
1: like this but god I wish they would there's there's something interesting about the way that Sweden approaches these things in a universal way rather than a means tested way whereby everybody is on board now there's slightly different because there's kind of a consensus about a higher rate of tax as well
2: but everybody gets behind these ideas i think it's also something like you know, it's a bit like the childcare system is a consequence of the rest of the system in a way, isn't it? Yeah. You know, a more consensual political system, a more social democratic country, the sort of equal role for women. So, so obviously we've got to demand the universal childcare, but, but maybe it also goes along with these other changes that we need to see.
5: You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff
0: Lloyd.
1: And time for this week's Cheerful People. And our cheerful person this week has come bearing gifts. So you've already ingratiated yourself Definitely. to us. It's uh, Stella Duffy. We're going to be talking about fun palaces. But first of all, I want to say thank you for the for the signed oh, packet yeah. of crumpets you mm-hmm. bought for me.
5: I did. Well, you see, because I'm a listener, I did uh, hear about the crumpets. I have actually been looking for wholemeal crumpets. I honestly don't think they exist. You don't want to be having them with butter, though, sweetie. Calling.
1: Calling. bad thing. Calling. So, so my wife she's american she is it was culturally unaware of crumpets until yes. a few weeks ago and she has them with olive oil and i kind of make fun of her for it that's freaky it is freaky right so tell actually,
5: tell your wife she's weird and odd i've, From I've, me. I've
1: done that <laughs> so how would you have your crumpets
2: there? oh well with butter but butter's not good for us I, even the english muffin as it's called quite similar to the is crumpet? It, is,
5: isn't that what americans call a crumpet
2: you, I think, but, I think yes they, they do actually yes I, I asked my Does mother to pick me up some hey, crumpets once crumpet. and she turned
1: up with some english muffins okay but i, th- I I think the reason the crumpet is less calorific as discussed previously is the holes. the holes. It's the holes, it's the holes. It's the yeah. holes in the crumpet that There's make it There's a lot happen. of air. That's why yeah. if I you want that's... a bar of chocolate
2: you can have yourself a flake because it's mainly air. <laughs> it's I think you've been slightly bamboozled by the, <laughs> so... by the by the by the marketing. And Stella has bought me has b- bought me
5: bought you actually bought paid me proper me money her
2: book yeah. London Lies Beneath because I've... I said I wasn't a, a very a frequent fiction, fiction writer. Yes. Uh and I'm looking forward to reading well, it.
5: Well, please do, one day. Maybe next Maybe next year's holiday. When no, you, no, no, no. Before then. Before then. Um, it's a very lovely... Well, it's my, it's my It's my best novel. It's my 15th novel, and I think it's my best. I'm probably not supposed to say that, and my publishers would probably hate that that. Is it your like, most
1: recent one? No. Right, yeah. Because you're <laughs> yeah. always supposed to say yeah, your most recent and, one is and, your best. And, and
5: the last couple have been good as well. <laughs> I, I just happen to know that, that a lot of my heart's in that one. That's
1: Right, well, I'm going to read it. Yeah. So... But we're here to talk about fun palaces. We are, yes. What are fun palaces?
5: Okay, do you want the the historical spiel or just the current one?
2: Both. Okay,
5: right, so here we go. In approximately 1961, Joan Littlewood, theatre director, whose work you will know, Oh What Lovely War, Things ain't What They Used To Be. But what you may not know about her is that she um, formed theatre workshop with Jimmy Miller, also known as Ewan McColl, Kirsty's dad. Uh-huh.
0: Dirty old town. Uh-huh, everything's
5: yeah. joined up. Um, and she was uh, blacklisted by the BBC because she was a communist in the 30s. And she was just phenomenal, this amazing, amazing South London theatre woman who left London when she was 23 years old, having won the speech prize at RADA. So this is perhaps illegitimate terms, terms that they used in those days. She didn't know if she was her mother's daughter or her, or her sister's daughter when she was growing up. And uh, won the speech prize at RADA, really big deal, common, you know, common girl from South East London, South West, sorry, Stockwell. People will be so upset. Um, And anyway, she hated being in the West End because she had to talk terribly posh and very Celia Johnson. And in her book, which is confusingly called Joan's Book, so you say to people, you should read Joan's Book, and they go, what's it called? And you say, Joan's Book, and they go, what's it called? Anyway, in her book, she says... I decided to walk from London to Manchester and she was so she wanted to basically go to where the Communists were rising in Britain. and she was so political and so full of you know the working people and the left. and in the, there's a line that says something like, "I arrived in Manchester and smelt the grit of communism from the Pennines." <laughs> um, so she was phenomenal and completely over the top. Anyway, so there was also this amazing architect, 20 years her junior, um, Cedric Price. And in the 60s, they came up with an idea to have a venue that would house everything all the arts, all the sciences. You know, you did the music education program, right? So, so that music education wasn't just for the middle class, which it still currently is in Britain, wasn't just going to happen to the privileged few, but was going to be for everybody. They had Yehudi Menuhin on the board. They had the amazing Buckminster Fuller on the board. And of course, the building never happened. And um, Richard Rogers has said that the design that Cedric Price did for the Fun Palace that never got built is what he and uh, Renzo Piano based their design for the Pompidou Centre on. That's a fantastic. I know, isn't bit it of brilliant? Information. Yeah. Um, and you can see, if you, actually, if you look at their their early designs before it turned into, you know, how yeah. architecture designs change. Anyway, they couldn't get the money together for the building. It was going to cost. It was going to be for the people of the East End because Joan was by then at. Theatre Royal Stratford East, and she could see that there were all these phenomenal people. So my family are white working class from New Zealand and from Southeast London. And there's all these amazing people They just, you know, my mum and dad had to leave school at 14. My brother and sisters left school at 15 and 16. If you don't get the chances to see that there are dozens of things you could do with your life, yes, you might find those again in your 50s and 60s. But but what about all the rest of the time? So Joan was saying, well, why don't we have this space that was, is available to everyone, that's free, where you might walk in. So say you're like my brother and you get an LEB apprenticeship at 15. You might walk in and you'd, you'd go over there to be learning your Mechanics Institute paper on, I don't know, fixing your motorbike. But on the way, you would stop and have a pint and they're all in the same building, right? And... Then you watch the football live, because it's on the telly. This is before we had live screening of anything, that they were dreaming this up. And then you might see that there's a, I don't know, a chamber orchestra over there, and you notice that someone from your estate is playing in it, and you understand that people like you can do all the things.
2: So it's all in one place. All in one place. This was the dream. And this was the dream, Uh and on the weekend of October the 5th and 6th... it is it a happened. reality.
5: Six years ago, we thought we would do something for Jane Littlewood's centenary, me and my co-director, Sarah Jane Rawlings. And it took off. There were 138 fun palaces around Britain the first weekend. So far, there have been... Let me see if I can remember the numbers. It's an annual weekend of action, and people... Are, People are not doing it in just their buildings, they're doing it in the libraries or the town hall or in the village square. Or We've got two in forests this year, several on trains, lots of pub fun palaces. A
1: mobile fun palace. Yeah,
5: yeah, absolutely. So, so there's been 1,367 fun palaces run by 38,400 local people uh, in 15 nations with 450,000 people taking part so far. And they're amazing. I mean, there's one in Stock. Stockton called what would Greta do fun palace. And their entire fun palace is people sharing their passions. So, men, here we go. Ed, if I were to ask you yeah. what you're passionate about that you could share that you could teach me, right? It doesn't have to be what you're famous for. For example, and it doesn't even have to be something you've talked Rubik's about. Rubik's Cube. Uh, exactly. Okay, this is such a good fun palaces thing, okay? Yeah. So what would happen was that you would take a little corner of yeah, your fun and palace Ru- and Rubik's show Cube. people how to do Rubik's Cubes, and then we might do some local history and find out if there was ever a Rubik's Cube, you know, I don't know, gamer, yeah. or um, if anybody had any connection to the original Rubik. How about you, Jeff?
1: it, it Probably Beatles. Uh,
5: Beautiful. Okay, so is, it, is this is this um, playing the music or quoting great screeds of lines?
1: It's, I, I'm I'm a little bit of a nerd, so the the history of okay. it and how it impacts on lots of other things.
5: Fantastic. So if you were to have both of these in your local fun palace, what I can teach is I'm halfway through learning to be, being becoming a yoga teacher, but I could teach I could get away with teaching a few little poses. We have had people make fun palaces with three days' notice. Quite often, they like to make it with six months' notice, and then they get stuff together as they go. But, you know, like, so the Trinier Estate in Cornwall, 30% of Fun palaces happen in, and it's such inverted commas stuff because the people in the Trinier Estate don't talk about themselves as deprived, but Cornwall is the second poorest county in Northern Europe. But the people of the Trinier Estate, who are also a fantastic residence association, who do all sorts of stuff, have been making a Fun Palace last year, they're making another one this year. It's saying to people that what you have to give in your own community is brilliant as it is and that every community has phenomenal people and yes sometimes there might be someone from outside who can bring something in as well if we turn and look at each other we've all got stuff to give each other frankly right now at the moment that bit where we can pay attention to what we what we do have as opposed to what we don't have in our communities that's really
1: important so you can either take part by offering something up for a fun palace uh, yes or you, you can go along go along for free
5: And it's for all ages. So last year, 22% of fun palaces were made. So we have like maker teams. um, And the makers are anyone who wants to offer a skill. And uh, the the average maker team is about 12 people. But last year, 22% of the maker teams involved people who were under 18 and over 65. So it's doing intergenerational by chance. Um, And because people are often offering things... So, you know, there are orchestras, there are astrophysicists, but there's also... I'm a little bit good at crochet, I could share something. And we're like, brilliant, come do that. Sit down for half an hour, share your Rubik's Cubing, and then go and learn something from someone else.
2: I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah.
5: What we like about it is that if... And If you were to teach, because I am really rubbish at Rubik's Cubes and I never yeah, manage to.
2: I, get, I've actually been rusty, I just have to confess. So you, I didn't need to you give my training. get and
5: frustrated and pick them off and then. I never just quite like that, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you were to teach me that, you and I would be using our hands. So we would get a chance to have a different conversation. But the biggest thing, I think, is that, that what I say to people, and we run workshops in this, and then people go on to do other stuff locally as well, but this is a really good starter, is we think it's fine if it's a bit shit. And unlike everything else, right, where you have to be shiny and you have to be perfect and you have to be glossy, if you are genuinely saying to your local community, anyone can get involved and anyone can contribute, some bits are going to be a bit rubbish and some bits are going to be much more that, astonishing that, that than I mean, you expected. joy of
1: it in a way. Totally. Yeah.
5: Because you – and the other thing is – your American wife will come along because she is being nice to you about the Beatles. But she didn't know that she wanted to talk to um, Ed, the queue for Ed's Rubik's Cube. Then you get different conversations happening because people don't know what's going to be in the fun palace.
1: So it's not too late to make a fun palace. No,
5: we have honestly had people sign up two days beforehand. And and also, we have loads of resources on the website. We've even got a template risk assessment form and it was done for us by our mate who used to do the outdoor skating rink at Somerset House in in Christmas time. So she knows about writing don't skate with scissors, okay? <laughs> Um, there's template letters to your MP and council. They may not come with two days' notice. Things Unless that,
1: your MP is there. Well, you well want exactly, yeah, yeah. He's exactly. He's there, there with cube. his Rubik's Definitely. cube. Definitely.
5: Um, but the and we also have posters and everything that people can order from us for free. And to
1: find out where your nearest fun palaces, go Palace to our is, website
5: funpalaces.co.uk. And there's a lovely map there. You put your postcode in, your closest ones come up. Stella Duffy, thank you, <laughs>
1: thank you for the crumpets, <laughs> the birthday inspiration. Got, it's
5: all there, baby.
2: I'm getting practicing with my Rubik's cube.
5: Please do. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and
0: Jeff Lloyd.
2: Well, we're in the outro. Yeah. How's your holiday going?
1: I'm hoping it's going well. We're trying to uh, toilet train our son right. at the moment, and that's going to spill over literally into yeah. the holiday. We're, we're doing it. It's not going great for me. It, we, You've done it for yourself, have you, so far? I, I, I'm fairly toilet Good. trained, moderately yeah. so. Um, but we're, we're using, using—I not I think this might be frowned upon, but we're using chocolate buttons as incentive, which is going very well for him. But I'm finding that every time he uses the potty, I think I also deserve a treat, and I also
2: have a chocolate button. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's got its downsides. It? Yeah, well, it does. good good luck with that. And I hope you're having a lovely holiday. Uh, I'd like to thank our guests, Susanna Garvis, Jerome De Hanau, and Claire Harding, and thank you to the wonderful Stella Duffy. I can't
1: wait to get inside one of those fun palaces and start boring people with my uh, my, my trivia.
2: Emma Caution produced our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and go Kenyon, ed Seed produced our music james deacon did our ident gail lofthouse is our announcer and our artwork used to be done by emily, emily power, power. <laughs> and it's now done by henry cole
1: he he's been the rubik's cubist he's been an annoying git on trains
2: <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> and these have been reasons to be cheerful